You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, now as we hear your word, would you help us to see that in our own selves we are unworthy, but that you, through your love, through Jesus Christ, make us who we are meant to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I, by nature, am, I don't know whether you can tell this or not, honestly, I am, by nature, a type A person. Um, and that just means somebody who's, you know, constantly organized and on top of it. And as a, a type A person, I've been a, a lifelong, I've had a lifelong attraction to uh, the concept of self-help. Um, things that you might buy, books in particular, products uh, to help oneself. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you might think self-improvement or personal transformation. Um, these are sort of self-guided attempts to improve or, or help oneself. Uh, and this is usually through the assistance of, of a book, and typically it's through a relatively new book, the hottest one on the market, whatever it is. A similar concept that's in the news now is self-care, which is probably a subcategory of self-help. And I honestly had never even heard the phrase self-care before until I went to seminary where everybody, uh, I don't know if this is true at all seminaries, but everybody was all about self-care in seminary. And that's because ministers are usually uh, overworked and overworking. They're usually type A people and uh, who don't uh, take care of themselves until they need to. Uh, or you might think of motivational speakers, life coaches, or productivity tips. Self-help has become increasingly big in uh, the business world, and so that's why productivity is a big uh, part of it. The classic text in the self-help genre is uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I, I've read and I, I tried to apply, I tried. And another one that's uh, famous is Napoleon Hill's um, how uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich, which I haven't um, read before. And that's another aspect of self-help is often the sort of like, if you just think about the thing and are positive, name it and claim it, it's, it's going to happen to you. Or you might also think another a big thing in this genre is all the dummies and uh, idiot guides that you can buy on anything to teach yourself how to do anything under the sun. Hopefully by now you're getting a sense of what I'm talking about when I uh, I'm talking about uh, self-help. And like I said, uh, I, like many of you, have uh, purchased my fair share of, of this material, been attracted by the, um, the self-help section in bookstores. Most recently, I've been using a sort of um, uh, a, a personal organizing journal that's called the Self Journal, and it's by a company called Best Self. And I'm actually kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but it's really good. I mean, I use it eagerly. I've become more productive at work uh, using the, the self-journal by the company Best Self. But here's the thing uh, about self-help, the whole self-help movement, is that ultimately it doesn't work. Ultimately, it doesn't work. I mean, it will help you, just like the self-journal is making me more organized when I'm on it, as long as I use it every day, but ultimately, 
it doesn't work. And I think we're all, we all know this. We're, we're all sort of aware of this, at least uh, subconsciously, but we still irresistibly buy, purchase the new products that are endlessly coming our way, even though we know that um, the thing that we last used didn't work. And more and more people, you're seeing this in, um, uh, in the news or with different thinkers in the world, people are realizing that self-help can actually backfire in the opposite direction, that the goals are elusive and the help is never enough and we crave more. And finally, the material is actually making a lot of us unhappy, um, all the, the self-help stuff. There's a Danish psychologist named, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, Sven uh, Brinkman, who recently came out with a book called Stand Firm, Resisting the Self-Improvement Craze. Uh, and he's saying that uh, many of these uh, self-help uh, self uh, materials are making us unhappy, like I said, even to a pathological degree. I mean, just think about, I'm not on it, but I used to be, and I see my wife and other things on Instagram, the social media app. There are all these new like self-help gurus that you can follow on Instagram. They're self-made celebrities. And, uh, and, and ultimately, a lot of these people come to find out if you follow their story, they're, they're really unhappy. And the people who are following them are unhappy. And yet, we still can't get enough. We keep looking at this stuff online. Here's from a lecture uh, by Sven Brinkman uh, when he was talking about his book. He says, we are told by the culture that we live in that we're only all right if we're constantly developing, constantly changing if we're constantly adaptable, movable. It doesn't actually matter where you're going as long as you are moving, as long as you are doing something, as long as you're motivated and passionate and interested in personal and professional development. And I think it's, it actually makes us miserable because what the ideology is telling us is no matter what we do, no matter how we perform, we, uh, we know that next year we'll have to do more, do better, something else. Can you relate to this feeling at all? In the face of uh, self-improvement or self-help, whatever you want to call it, our brief passage at the very end of Hebrews speaks a better word. We've just been going through the whole letter to the Hebrews and this short passage finally after some really lengthy ones. This short passage and just uh, its first couple of verses speaks a far better word than anything that all the self-help, um, uh, self-improvement gurus will ever tell us because it's a more ultimate and hopeful word. And as a result, it's actually even more practical. It's an even more practical word than anything that you can buy at uh, Barnes & Noble in the self-help aisle. There are two main sections in our short passage today. I'm just going to look at the first one. The final section has some really helpful material for uh, who wrote the letter and to whom um, that we can glean, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to just look at the, uh, the, the first section of our passage. I'm just going to read it to you again. It's, it's one long sentence, uh, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And the words now and amen that bookend that, the, the, that sentence and the, the content of it, the style of it, tell us that obviously this is what's called a benediction, um, which is a, a, a sort of a blessing that one might say at the end of a service or a sermon. It's usually a, a sort of a prayerful way of, of wishing well to the audience. And this is uh, the author of uh, Hebrews benediction at the end of his uh, written sermon, his prayerful wishing well to uh, his audience. And so what, what is he wishing for? What is he praying for uh, for the folks who are reading this letter? Uh, three things, that, that God, number one, would, would secondly equip, thirdly, the readers, that God will equip the readers of, of this letter. That's the main thought. Um, the subject is God, the verb is equip, the object are the readers. And let's look at the word equip. This is the, the main verb of the benediction, like I said. And in the, the Greek, it can mean uh, prepare, create, restore, or unite, if you're looking at any sort of um, um, academic uh, uh, concordance to help you understand uh, the Greek words in the New Testament. Those are the words that come up. But uh, more interestingly than those words is that it's also used in Matthew and Mark to speak of the sons of Zebedee mending their nets. Remember, they were fishermen, the, uh, some of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so the same Greek word that's used here uh, to equip the readers, that word equip is used to mean mend, when fishermen were uh, mending their nets. So we could say instead, may the God of peace mend you with everything good. So here's a question for you. What do you call a fishing net that needs to be mended? Useless. <laughs> if a fishing net has tears in it, you're going to lose the fish, right? Right? I see Ellis shaking his head. <laughs> You're going to lose the fish. So it's useless if it needs to be mended. Uh, Martin Luther, a uh, theologian 500 or so years ago, um, 500 years ago this year in 1518, as a matter of fact, uh, wrote uh, what's called a disputation, the Heidelberg Disputation. He's famous for his 95 theses you may have heard of. A year later, he wrote 28 theses, really explaining uh, in a more crystal clear sense uh, his theology. And the final thesis of that disputation, number 28, which speaks to this sentence that I'm expounding on today, Martin Luther said this, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. In contrast to that, he says, the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. In other words, God mends by his love uh, us to be pleasing to him. God creates in us, uh, as Martin Luther said, that which is pleasing uh, to him. And you can contrast this, as he says, to people, because people only or mostly love things that please them. Do you see the contrast there? That God even loves the things that don't please him, but creates in us, even when we don't please him, uh, the, the things that will please him. It's helpful to remember uh, the situation of the uh, letter of the Hebrews. We've been talking about this all along, what's going on here, and, and why uh, this benediction. 
the here's the historical situation of the original audience to the uh, uh, of the letter to the Hebrews. Remember that uh, we can glean from the clues throughout the whole letter that uh, the original recipients had faced persecution for their Christian faith, and they're presently being persecuted again. And this includes being thrown out of uh, different Jewish institutions, probably their synagogue, the temple in Jerusalem, maybe even family, and some are probably in prison because of their new faith in Jesus Christ. In short, they've lost everything save for dying. They've lost everything in life except for losing their life. They're like torn nets. And this is the context of uh, the benediction that the author of Hebrews uh, is giving to that audience. There's a, a common um, storytelling device, a trope is the fancy word, a storytelling device in, in movies, you'll see this in movies, but even in, um, in, uh, in, in books where characters, probably the protagonist usually, is reduced to nothing, reduced to absolute nothing or loses um, most everything or something that's most precious in life, they have to be reduced in order to finally uh, become who they're meant to be or to follow their true calling in life. As Tyler Durden says in the, the, the movie Fight Club, it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Think um, Batman in The Dark Knight Rises, remember, where he has to um, go into the, the, the pit. Uh, he has his back broken. You know, Batman, who's strong. There's a guy stronger than him, breaks his back, and then puts him in prison. And he has to go in prison uh, and then, uh, you know, lose, lose his life as he knows it before he can rise again and become the Dark Knight, you know, uh, to save Gotham. Or think Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit, the very beginning, remember, who um, loves his home and the comfort and his pipes and his handkerchiefs. But he's been called on this mission, and he says, wait, I need to go get my pipes and my handkerchiefs, and there's no time to get the handkerchiefs. You're either going home or you're coming with us. And so he has to leave his pipes and his comfort and his food behind in order uh, to go on the mission that he's called to. Well, I had a, a similar experience to this in a smaller way that was a huge turning point for me pastorally. When I was training uh, in the hospital uh, to be a chaplain, when I first started, you know, still relatively new at all this pastoring stuff and still kind of young, I carried around all this stuff. I had a clipboard that opened and had all the information on all the patients and inside the clipboard that opened had some useful materials that I could hand out and a Bible and all this stuff. And for some reason, I got this conviction that I needed to just leave it all behind. I needed to leave it all behind and just go in vulnerable into the hospital room. And it was a massive turning point for me. Actually, my pastoral care improved when I, would, uh, when I lost everything, when everything had to be uh, taken away. And stories like this abound throughout the Bible. Think of Job, who was possibly the wealthiest man alive, uh, at his time, who had all of his, uh, um, all of his worldly goods taken away, and even loved ones die. 
uh, before uh, he, would, he would finally have a true right relationship with God. Or think of Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, who had everything together as far as he could tell, on his way to persecute the church, knocked off his horse by Jesus and his vision taken away from him before he could become an apostle of God. Or Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who I just mentioned, who had to leave their fishing careers behind, you know, their, the thing that gave them their livelihood, those nets they had to leave behind before they could follow Jesus. Or Joseph, abandoned by his brothers in a, in a pit, in a cistern, left to die and then taken into bondage into Egypt and put into prison before he would become a prince of Egypt. And similarly, Moses, who had to leave behind being a prince of Egypt in order to lead his people in the Exodus. And if you think this all sounds um, strange and unfair, I mean, just think about, about your own life. Haven't you had an experience where you had to lose um, something or some things precious or nearly all that you had? in order to enter an entirely new place in life, to, to come to the place where, where you needed to be, after all, the right place to fall in love, uh, to get the job, to fix a relationship, or maybe, or maybe to come to faith uh, in Jesus Christ. Painful things um, can happen in our lives for a, a variety of reasons. And in our day and age, our society basically has two default responses to all this. If you're just listening to all the the, the noise out there, um, whatever that is, the two default responses are either to painful things in life, to play the victim, you know, to shout, why does this kind of thing always happen to me? You know, why does it keep, I've done that before. Why why do I always have a bad day, you know, Uh, to whine? Or the second response is to ignore the pain, to just ignore the pain. I'm seeing this more and more. There's sort of a modern stoicism going around. That's a lot of the self-help stuff out there, if you, if you pick it up, or even the New Age uh, um, mystical stuff. A lot of it is basically stoicism, to just ignore the pain, to either play the victim or uh, to ignore the pain. But the letter to the Hebrews offers a different and more helpful answer, and that's because God creates out of nothing. God creates, the fancy word is ex nihilo, God creates out of nothing. We must be reduced to nothing in order to be recreated. That's just the way that God works. We must be reduced to nothing in order to be recreated, to be mended, to be saved, and to be uh, of use to God. I mean, just think of Ezekiel with the valley of uh, the dry bones. You know, we must become like those skeletons before God can breathe his spirit on us to become uh, the army of God. That's just the way that God works. He creates out of nothing. So where's the, uh, the comfort in this? Well, the God who must uh, see us reduced to nothing is also the God of peace, as our, uh, our first verse says to us today, and our great shepherd, and the one who brought Jesus, who was reduced to absolute nothing, uh, back alive from death. That's our God. That's where the comfort is. If he can do all that, if he's the God of peace, the great shepherd who can bring Jesus back to life, He'll, in our reduction, do the same to create us who we're meant to be. What we're, uh, and what are we um, 
what are we uh, equipped or mended or recreated for exactly, either individually or as a community together? Well, what has the letter uh, to the Hebrews told us so far? All 13 chapters. When the church and uh, Christians like the Hebrews have been reduced, we are mended to trust Jesus Christ above everything else because he's superior. We are mended to rest in Jesus and not harden our hearts in rebellion to God. And we're prepared to exhort each other as a community. This is emphasized three times in chapter three, chapters 3, 10, and 13, earlier in 13, uh, that we are prepared to be in community together. And we begin to have a mature understanding of Christian doctrine. We have a faith that means that we allow our future hope to determine our present reality. We look to Jesus and to his suffering when uh, enduring pain. And we even sing God's praises when life doesn't go our way. We might show hospitality uh, and care for the persecuted. We'll honor marriage between men and women. We'll stop being greedy, respect leaders, and not be led astray with strange teachings. In other words, our whole life begins to become an act of worship to God. All because the God who allows us to be reduced to nothing also mends us to be what he wants us to be. Remember what Martin Luther said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And so this um, benediction challenges several type of, types of people. And my guess is that you're one of the three, either predominantly or maybe some sort of combination. This benediction in chapter 13 challenges those who think they must get their act together before coming to God, first of all. This benediction challenges any of us who think that we need to get our act together before coming to God. Remember that God, he, he, he creates and doesn't find that which is pleasing. And secondly, this benediction challenges those who think they must perpetually keep their act together based on their own strength in order to maintain God's love. And finally, <clears throat> this benediction challenges those who say that because God loves them, it doesn't matter what they think or how they live their lives. Do any of these uh, three possibilities describe you in, in some way? You know, what's your... Uh, what's the thing that you're prone to, your tendency? Well, whatever your tendency, hear this. The God of peace is mending you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, I, like many people, am attracted to self-help material but I'm afraid that uh, without Jesus Christ, there's no point to all this endless energy. There might be a point with Jesus, but without him, there's no point at all. Our God doesn't sit idly by waiting uh, to approve those who have improved themselves. Instead, he improves us. He improves and equips the unworthy, the unlovable, and the unproductive. He mends the broken, those reduced to nothing, 
like uh, worthless fishing nets or the, the place that the Hebrews probably were in. In short, God helps the helpless. Just as he created the universe out of nothing, he also creates the good in us uh, to do his will out of nothing. He creates that which is pleasing to him by his love through Jesus Christ. And all we may do in this equation is to accept the mending, to accept the mending, to stand out of the way, to surrender, and like a broken net, receive the mending uh, so that we might work properly. And this is not an easy thing uh, to accept uh, for those who are obsessed with self-improvement. But we must accept the God improvement plan. I want to end by giving you the blessing that we say at every single funeral service in this church. I've stood right here at dozens of funeral services and uh, said this blessing. And so this blessing is said at funeral services when people are reminded of death, uh, when they're thinking of mortality, when reminded that all the efforts towards improvement in this life are ultimately going to end. They're going to end with death. This is the thing that we say at the funeral. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.